0: Well, as we continue our time in First Peter this morning, we come to yet another turn in Peter's thought. Peter's been giving his readers, and us for that matter, instruction on how we are to live our lives as Christians in a society that sees the faith as strange and even offensive. So he's given us instructions for how we are to relate to governing authorities, that we are to submit to governing authorities. And he gave instructions to slaves that they are to submit to their masters. And he's given instructions to wives that they are to submit to their own husbands, and husbands also are to honor and love their wives. And then last week, Tate preached on how we're to conduct ourselves as believers, as Christians, and also how we're to conduct ourselves with our enemies, those who hate us and revile us and persecute us. And so this week, it comes to a turn now, not on how we're to conduct ourselves, but now as we conduct ourselves in this world, he turns to how the world might respond to us, how in fact the world likely will respond to us as we conduct ourselves in the world, and it's persecution, and that's what we're going to be focusing on in the next few weeks, the persecution that Christians face as the world sees our good conduct, And then seeing our good conduct, it's our hope that some would come to believe, as we saw weeks ago, but now seeing our conduct, some will hate us and revile us for our conduct. I wonder how many of you guys know who Jim Elliott is. I first heard the story of Jim Elliott when I watched the film Into the Spear back in 2005. In 1956, Jem Elliott and four other men were killed in their attempts to bring the gospel to the unreached people of Ecuador. And when I saw the film, this is what I thought. I thought those who would be persecuted, at least as Americans, those who would be persecuted as Americans were those who were missionaries to those who were hostile towards the gospel. That was 20 years ago. But today, it's not too difficult to see where our society is going. As many in our own country grow increasingly hostile towards not just Christ, but towards Christians and towards what is good and right and pleasing to God. And so, it's not hard for us to see how relevant Peter's words are for us today, especially if we continue to see where the trajectory of our culture is heading. Persecution is not just happening in Ecuador or in other places around the world, but persecution is certainly bound to be on our own doorsteps as we ourselves are exiles in a world and in a country that sees our way of life strange and even offensive. So from our text, I see seven reasons for why we are to do good here in exile, especially in light of the fact that it's going to be increasingly difficult for us to do good in light of the persecution that may come our way. Now, let me clarify two things right from the start. The first is rather brief. Uh, You see seven reasons. Uh, I have seven points. And some of you might think, and service started 30 minutes late, so we may as well get ready for dinner. Well... Don't worry about it, not all my points are the same length, and so if you start to get nervous around point three that this sermon is going to take forever, don't worry, Uh, the latter points aren't as long as some of the earlier points. Uh, The second thing I want to clarify, though, is I want us to make sure we understand very clearly who Peter is writing to. Peter is writing to Christians, those who, he has said, have been born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, In chapter 1, verse 3, these people, these Christians, those of us who love Jesus, have been born again, not according to anything that we've done, but he said, because of the great mercy of God who has caused us to be born again. And So if you are a Christian this morning, it is not owing to anything you have done, nothing good or bad, but it's owing to mercy and God's grace And this new nature that you have as one who has been born again, you are a new creation, now you have new desires. Or so, I hope, if you are a Christian, you will have new desires. You were once enslaved to sin, but because of the work of Christ in your life, because of his death on the cross, you too have now died to sin and are now alive so that you might live to righteousness, 1 Peter 2.24. And Peter now points out this new nature here, even in our text, verse 13. He says, now who is to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Now, we know what it means to be zealous because all of us are zealous about something around this time of the year. Some of us start getting very zealous about football or hunting or pumpkin spice in our coffee. We're all passionate and excited about, about various things in the fall. But, but for you to be zealous, For what is good is owing not to anything good in yourself, but it is owing to God who has caused you to be born again. I love how Paul said it in Titus 2.14. He said that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are, here it is, zealous for good works. This is what Christ did. He purifies us so that we would be zealous for good works. And that's what Peter has in mind here. He's talking not about how we ought to be zealous. That's not what he's saying. But he's saying for those who are zealous, he's now encouraging us to do good works, though the world might hate us for it. But understand, Christians already have new desires for what is good. Christians hunger and thirst for righteousness. So Peter's not telling us to behave. That's not what he's saying here, but he's telling those who already have godly appetites to continue in it, even if the world would discourage it. And that's what's all wrapped up in that one word, exile. The world sees us as strange, and they even hate our ways. And so with this in mind, let's hear what Peter has to say. Verse 13, now who is to harm you if you are zealous for what is good this is a rhetorical question and i hope you know the answer to it because he doesn't give the answer to it but it's plain enough to us if if anyone sees our good works if we're zealous for what is good the logic is no one's going to harm you which is the first point i want us to see the first reason why we should be continuing to do good works in a world that sees our works as strange is because we will likely be safe from harm if we are in fact zealous for good works Now, while there's nothing natural about being zealous for these good works, Peter's logic here is not strange even to people in the world, people who lack wisdom from God. Calvin goes on to show how this wisdom that he's talking about, how it's probably going to go well for you if you do good, is what Plato taught. But I don't need to read Plato or Proverbs even for that matter for us to recognize the truth of what he's saying, that it'll likely go well if you do good. You will likely not face harm because We all know this instinctively. In fact, even our kids could teach this to us. The other day, I was watching two of my kids, the two that are old enough to hit each other. I was watching them from a distance, and they didn't know I was watching when one of them, I'll leave him nameless, (laughs) raised his hand to strike his sister, and uh before he did it, though, he looked over to see if I was watching. And when he saw my eyes meet his eyes, he quickly put his hand down. Because he knew. He knew. He's not, he doesn't have a new heart. He doesn't love God. He doesn't love righteousness. At that moment, he wanted to hit his sister, probably because she took his toy. But he knew that if he did what was wrong by hitting his sister, there were going to be consequences. And if he did what was good, he would also get Good. Well, the same wisdom applies to us, nonetheless, as Christians. Who is to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Answer, no one. No one is to harm you if you are zealous for what is good. This is even true in wicked societies. For example, consider Daniel when he was exiled in Babylon. He himself was a literal exile in a society that hated his way of life. It was an evil society ruled by an evil king who made evil laws and in Daniel 6 we read one of these laws King Darius he made a law that prohibited Daniel from praying to the Lord and by now we know that we are to submit to governing authorities yes this is true but only insofar as we do it for the Lord's sake and so we see even Daniel rebelling against the authority of the king not because he was disrespectful to the king but because he feared God so Daniel he he prayed Though he also prayed in secret, there's something for us to learn about that, but he prayed nonetheless. It did not keep him from doing what he knew he would would do. And yet this would cost him as it led to him being thrown in the lion's den. But when the king realized that by his own wicked law, Daniel was put in danger, even the king, you might remember, regretted his own law, though he could not change it. And it wasn't because the king feared God. It wasn't because the king loved righteousness. But it was because the king was a fool. But he still loved Daniel, who was righteous. So who is to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Answer, no one. However, the story continues. Daniel still got thrown into the lion's den. Did Peter forget this? Or did he forget that Jesus even told him and the other disciples that that we would suffer? No. Understand, Peter is not promising anything here. He is not promising us that if we are zealous for what is good, we will not suffer. Peter knew that Daniel was thrown into the lion's den. And Peter himself, along with the other apostles, knew firsthand what it felt like to suffer for righteousness' sake. And so did his readers. And so do many of us. So this rhetorical question is not intended to be read as a promise, but more it is to be understood to be the pattern of what is normal when one is zealous for what is good. If you are zealous for what is good, the probability of you being harmed for doing what is good makes what Peter's saying here rather proverbial. You know this, that if you bless your neighbors instead of cursing them, if you do good for them instead of insulting them and reviling them and stealing from them and doing them harm, you know it's, it's going to go better for you than if you do all these things to your neighbors. It's proverbial. It's, the, it's what you might expect to see if you do good. But we also know this, that the Proverbs are not promises. Take, for example, Proverbs 22, verse 6. Train up a child in the way that he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, this is wonderful wisdom, and parents, you should live by this. You should train up your children in the way that they should go. But, but you should also know this. If you train up your children in the way that they should go, it does not mean that they will not abandon the Lord Jesus Christ. It does not mean that they will, in fact, even come to the faith. This is a proverb that shows us the pattern of how life works in the world, but it is not a promise. And Peter's doing the very same thing here as he's telling us that if we are zealous for what is good, the, 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 the question, the answer to it is it is, it is likely to go well. We, we likely will not face harm. But just because this is the normal experience that we would have in life if we do good does not guarantee that we, it will in fact go well for us. And so Peter continues in verse 14 and makes his own thoughts abundantly clear. Now who is to harm you if you are zealous for what is good but... Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Brothers and sisters, if you should suffer for doing what is good, while you live amongst a people who hates what is good, you should continue in it nonetheless. Because here, there is a promise for us that if we suffer for righteousness' sake, we will be blessed. Point one followed the natural flow of logic such that even our children could teach us this. But here in point two, something far beyond what we can see with our eyes is put before us. We need to have faith and trust in the promises of God if we are to allow this point to, to enrich our lives such that we would boldly do good even in the face of what is frightening and so we need to be trained by the promises of God if we are going to think differently about our suffering when it comes to suffering for righteousness. But this point also differs from the previous point. And while the previous point was proverbial but not a promise, this one here is a promise that you can bank on. If you are zealous for what is good, if you suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. And this is likely Peter's main point throughout the rest of this text. And so it's also really the main point of this entire sermon. Yes, there's seven points, but this really is the main point. If you suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. So continue in doing good, holding on to the promises of God, knowing that your suffering and your good works are not in vain. understand the flow of how this connects to what came before. Remember last week, we heard this text preached. 1 Peter 3, 12, Peter said, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And so in light of this right here, this this wonderful passage of God's favor for his people who are the righteous, How should the Christian understand their suffering then? How should Peter's readers make sense of what they are experiencing? If the Lord's eyes are on the righteous, well then why are are we suffering for righteousness' sake? If his ears are open to our prayers, then why do we continue to suffer despite our prayers? If anything, it seems as if the Lord's face is against us. If you have faced trials, you might have thought that very same thing that God's face is against you because you are slandered and insulted by others, or because perhaps even your body is, is hurting, or because your marriage is struggling. Whatever other thing it might be that you're struggling with, whatever trial is in your life, you might be tempted to think, well, God's face must surely be against me because of some sin that I have committed. Well, if you are suffering for your sins, well, that may be very well the case. If you get a speeding ticket for speeding, that's not persecution, all right? But if you are suffering for righteousness' sake, Peter is here holding out before his readers and before us to know you will be blessed. God has not shown His face away from you. You will be blessed. If you suffer for righteousness' sake, if you suffer because you do not participate and give approval to what is sinful, you will be blessed. If you are made fun of for praying at school or in the workplace, you will be blessed if you are put to shame and mocked or even fired perhaps from your job for sharing the gospel in the workplace, you will be blessed. And to know this for certain, look no further than our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who when the Father looked at him, he said, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. He was without sin, unlike you or me. He was completely perfect, And yet he suffered. And he told us that we would likewise suffer. And though he suffered, he was raised from the dead. And so Christian, though you may suffer for righteousness sake, know this, you will be raised with Christ. You will be blessed. And this is a promise you can bank on. This is a promise that Peter holds out to every one of us as believers. If you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. And if you know Jesus' teachings, you know that this is not original to Peter. Our Lord said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's the blessing right there. The kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you and others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And Peter, he has been laboring already in this letter to hold out that very same blessing before us so that we might Hold on to it by faith, though we might not experience it here and now in its fullness. It's almost like the aroma that comes out of the oven that you can smell and say, oh, good things are coming. Listen to what Peter has taught us and what we have heard repeatedly already in verses 3 and 5 of the first chapter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation that is, be, that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Oh, we need our, our minds to be fixated on that promise, that blessed hope that we will receive. We need to To be so fixated on seeing Christ crucified, raised from the dead, and then he promises that he will return soon. We need to have that so ingrained in our mind that when we suffer, we do not waver and we do not lose hope and we do not wither and die like the, the seed that is planted among rocky ground, but instead that we would endure when we suffer. Christian, you will be blessed if you suffer for righteousness' sake. And so in light of that, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your heart, honor Christ the Lord as holy. If you do good, you will be blessed, though you might suffer, but nonetheless, in your suffering from those who wish to do you harm, you have no reason to fear and so christian continue to do what is good and if you do so you will have nothing to fear even if you should suffer for righteousness sake you even in the suffering even if, if you look the man in the eye who wishes to put you to death will still have nothing to fear these verses are an allusion from isaiah 8 listen to the words of isaiah 8 The Lord spoke thus to me and with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the ways of his people saying, do not call conspiracy all that the people call conspiracy. And here it'll sound familiar. And do not fear what they fear nor be in dread, but the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. What you see there in verse 11 when we walk in the ways of men, that's exactly what we're tempted to do, isn't it? When we are pressed hard by those who want us to conform to what is evil. And yet what the Lord said to Isaiah and what Peter is saying to us is don't be afraid of men. Fear God, fear him, honor him. But don't fear men. So how is it possible for us then to, to actually do what we're being commanded to do here? This is a command. Make no mistake about it. We are being commanded not to be afraid. So how is it possible for us to not be afraid when we are surrounded by all that is so frightening? Answer, we need to understand who God is. We need to truly understand who he is. So fear you're not Christian, this is a command you can obey. Fear not. So let me try to give you some help, some some foot, uh, some stones under your feet, so that you might not slip and be afraid. Here's the first thing I want us to, to learn: learn who is to be feared, and it is not men but God. Listen to what Jesus taught us. I tell you, my friends, I wonder. I, I, I love that He calls us His friends. And nonetheless, there is something to be feared. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you of whom you are to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast in hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. So yeah, we're we're friends of God, we're friends of Jesus Christ. And nonetheless, there is a, a very real fear that we are to have of God, especially if we do not fear him, but instead fear men and give way into the ways in which men would tell us to live. Fear the Lord, for he can do far more than just kill you. You know that he can do that, but he can do far more. He can cast you into hell. So fear the Lord. And if you rightly fear God, then the fear of men will subside. And when you fear God, but not only fear him, but realize that we're his friends, oh, fear, it goes away. It vanishes into nothing. Listen again to what Jesus said this time in Luke 21. He said, you will be delivered up, even by parents and brothers, relatives and friends. And some of you, they will even put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. But not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. Even our Lord right here is telling us to endure and doing what is good and right. Endure in the faith and not be in dread and fear of those who would otherwise hate you and kill you, even if that be your, your own family. But know this, you're so precious to God, so important to him, and he is also so strong that not even a hair of your head will perish so even in death, we have a refuge in our God and he will not let us be put to shame. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised and who is at the right hand of God, who indeed, is interceding for us. Oh, brothers and sisters, we have nothing to fear if you are zealous for what is good. The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. Peter continues, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that is in you. If you do good and you even suffer for it, understand then, this trouble will give you new opportunities. You will have a platform for the gospel. Now to natural men, this might not be very much incentive for for doing good, a platform for the gospel. That is an opportunity to share who Jesus is and what he has done and why we have such confidence in life even in the face of death but for those who have been born again those who are zealous for good this becomes an awesome motive for doing good even in the face of danger you know why you might not have to do so many cold opens trying to to share the gospel with people who don't even ask you the question but here what Peter's setting before us is people will begin asking you tell me why do you have such hope Now, let me clarify a few things. This sermon is not primarily about apologetics. Notice this command even here is nested between the call to suffer for doing good in verses 13 and 17. So defending the faith appears to be subordinate here in Peter's mind to that of doing good even in the face of danger. So sorry to disappoint anyone who might have hoped they would hear a, a sermon about apologetics this morning. Now, at first sight, this might seem like an abrupt change of topic for Peter. Peter was talking about suffering, and now he's talking about sharing the faith, giving a defense for the hope that's in us to those who ask. And it might seem like a strange thing to inject right here in the middle of this call to do what is good. So how did Peter get there? Well, let me tell you a story about a recent experience that I had. Uh, My wife and I, we were traveling, and we were staying at a hotel, and this, this hotel was surrounded by a bunch of hills. And those hills were were nothing exciting. They were rather drab hills, boring to look at. That was until it was dark. And in the darkness, there on one of the hilltops, you could see a bright light shining. And all of a sudden, I was drawing my attention to that hill, looking at it, gazing at it, wondering what that bright light was for. I'd never found out so sorry to disappoint you yet again if you were hoping to find out what that light was for, but nonetheless, I was like a a fly drawn to a light. I was so curious about what was on that hill when the day before, when it was bright out, I I, I could care less about what was on that hill. So too, Christian, you might not stand out very much from others when life is good. We might drive similar cars. You might even dress similar to the world, perhaps. Sure, we, we are different, for sure, in our practices. We we don't dress the exact same and we probably don't drive the same cars either in the exact same manner but they're but they're similar but what becomes especially unique about the Christian is what happens when the Christian is in the dark compared to that when the world is is facing all kinds of trials because when the world suffers they lose all hope loss of money for the world loss of reputation is only a reason to grieve and death that's just the end the same is not so for the Christian. We may lose our money, but our treasure is hidden with Christ where neither moth nor rust destroys nor thief breaks in and steals. We might be mocked for being a Christian, but we rejoice nonetheless because we are counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And even if we face death, though we might mourn, we do not mourn like the world because death for us is gained. And if the world begins to watch us and see us in the darkness and notice there's something peculiar about them from the rest of the world, it might lead them to ask a question. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Let me make three brief observations about what Peter's calling us to here in verse 15. First, you are called to share the gospel with those who ask. Very different from sharing the gospel with every single person who we meet on the side of the road. In fact, Jesus even warned us about casting our pearls before swine. And so don't feel guilty if you don't share the gospel with someone, although I would still encourage you nonetheless to do so. But what we're being called to hear specifically is to share with those who ask us for a reason for the hope that is in us. Second, you are called to defend the reason for the hope that is in you. You are not called to refute every single error. That's not what he's saying here. You're not called to explain what happened to the dinosaurs. That's not what he's saying here. But you are to explain why you cannot be shaken even in the face of Great danger. The first question in the Heidelberg Catechism is helpful in answering this question. Question What is your only comfort in life and death? Some of you might know this answer that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation because I belong to him. Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. What an awesome answer for someone who might ask you for a reason for the hope that is in you. However, let me clarify one last thing. Peter is not asking us to recite catechisms, however helpful they may be. But rather, he is calling us to make a defense for the reason, for the hope that is in you. You are not simply defending the Christian faith. You are not even defending your parents' faith but you are called to defend your faith. That is the hope that is in you. And so while knowing the catechism questions may prove to be helpful, knowing the catechism question is not the same thing of what Peter is calling us to do here. If you're here this morning, and you're afraid of someone asking you for a reason to hope, because you might be afraid, I might not know the catechism answer. Or I, might, I might not even know what to say at all. Then you have a different concern altogether than not knowing the right answer. If you don't know the reason for the hope that is in you, then you should be concerned whether or not you will be able to stand in the day when trouble comes your way. If you do not have this hope so firmly rooted in you, I fear you will not be able to answer the question when someone asks. And you might not even need to worry about someone asking because they probably won't ever ask you either if they don't see this hope in you. Now, while Peter here does not give us specific instructions for what we are to say, he does give us instructions for how we're to conduct ourselves when we give our answer. Verse 15 and 16. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience. We're going to fly through this but first we're to do it with gentleness. So when we're zealous and excited or perhaps even enraged by the person who is otherwise mocking us, let your zeal be tempered with gentleness. Furthermore, he says we're to do so with respect. Actually, literally the word is fear and it would be kind of confusing if it said fear because he just told us not to be afraid and yet I think what he's calling us to do is to fear God as we answer And lest, again, the fear of God would temper us, lest we sin in the way that we answer. And finally, we're to do so with a good conscience. It's true, others may condemn us. They may speak evil of us, but we must not worry about their accusations. But if our own consciences condemn us due to our sin, then it's going to be hard for us to give a reason for the hope that is in us. Plenty more might be said about this and it would be fun to have that conversation in community group. But for now, may it be sufficient for us to know that he's calling us to have good conduct towards those who revile us even when we make a defense for the faith. And then here comes the purpose for our good conduct in verse 16. We have a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. This point comes against our temptation to return evil for evil, reviling for reviling. And Peter says that our good works are the very weapon that is used against the wicked. So Christian, do good. And if you do, know that you will be vindicated from the wicked. Your enemy will be put to shame and you will not. And this might seem like a strange motive for doing good, This might be strange to us who are called to love our enemies and pray for them and bless them and it would be wrong if this was the only motive that we had for doing good. But as I said, this is given to us so that we might again curb our fleshly desire for returning evil for evil. We have a God who is just and a God who will not let the guilty go unpunished. And so while we do hope First, that our enemies would repent of their sins and turn to Christ. Know this, that those who do not repent but continue in their sin against you will ultimately be put to shame. Remember, this is exactly what happened to Daniel's enemies. After Daniel was delivered from the lion's den, he actually didn't suffer any harm. The Lord protected him. But immediately afterwards, we read this. The king commanded that those who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they and their children and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones to pieces. May that serve as a warning to those who continue in sin. The wicked will not go unpunished, which leads us right into the next point, verse 17. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. If you live a life of righteousness that is marked by a zeal for what is good because of what God has done inside of you, you may suffer, but know this, you will not suffer for doing evil. The wicked will most Certainly suffer. Proverbs 11 tells us, be assured, an evil person will not go unpunished. And if we think that we're exempt from this warning, understand just as Jesus told us to persevere earlier, so too, if we do not persevere to the very end, we should not just assume that we are Christians. If we continue in sin, if we turn from what is good and right and pleasing to God and and instead become conformed to the patterns of the world, we should not think that we will not suffer that of what the wicked will suffer. Peter will tell us even just later on in 1 Peter 4.15, but let none of you suffer as a a murderer or a thief or an, an evildoer or a meddler. If you walk in the way of the wicked, you should expect to suffer. It goes all the way back to the very first point, the very same lesson that our children could teach us. If you do what is evil, you will not have good in return. If you do what is evil to your spouse, then you will have struggles in your marriage. If you do what is evil at work, you might get fired. If you do what is evil in society, you might be punished, and such a punishment would not be persecution. You would simply be getting what you deserve, and the wicked deserve death. Even the cross reminds us of that. Yes, we think about the cross and we think about what Jesus did and bearing our sin and shame on the cross, but when we look at the cross, we also see what it was, what its original intent was by the Romans who would crucify Jesus, was to, to punish those who were wicked. That's why when Jesus died, he was surrounded by two criminals. This was, this was the punishment for sinners. And they deserved what they got there on the cross. Even they said that themselves. But if you should suffer for doing good, that is, for following Jesus, know that you will not suffer for doing evil. And it is better for suffering for righteousness' sake than for doing what is evil and suffering for it instead. And that, that's so contrary to our logic. We think, if, if I'm going to get in trouble, I may as well deserve it, right? Wrong. It is far, far better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil, which brings us to our final point. If it should be God's will. Understand this, Christian. If you do good and you suffer for it, you are still within the will of God. God has not turned his face on you. You are not counted among the wicked if you suffer for doing good. When Peter says it would be better for suffering if it would be the will of God, he reminds us that even in our suffering, we are not outside of God's control. And if you are under God's sovereign hand as his child and him as your father, then you have every reason for confidence this morning. And you have every reason then to rejoice no matter how hard your lot in life is. I'm not sure how anyone can suffer and endure if they do not know that God is sovereign. That everything that comes to pass comes to pass because he wills it to come to pass. I have a neighbor who, who flies a plane, and the other day he offered to take me up in his little plane. And I'll admit, I was immediately terrified at even the thought. My heart just started racing. Because I just thought, if I get in the plane with him, what if he tries to pull some kind of stunt that I'm not ready for? Or what if he's not a good pilot? And worse, what if he loses control of the plane while he's in the air? Now, I'm not sure how much safer it is to get in a car than it is to get in a plane with people who like to fly for a hobby. But just the difference in imagining myself up there in the the air made me feel all the more helpless and all the more afraid. Not that I have a fear of flying. I'm just afraid if I'm not confident in the one who is flying. But what about this little blueberry planet that we find ourselves on? Are we just floating in space apart from God's sovereign will over everything? Because if so, then we are not safe, no matter how strong our bunkers may be. Earthquakes strike, and in a moment, thousands are left dead. Cars lose control, immediately snuffing out life. And even while we sleep, Cancer sets in. And these are just the random things that happen in the world, not to mention all the harm that comes from those who are wicked. And all the while, we're told, Fear not. How is it possible to not be afraid when we are surrounded by all these dangers? It's only possible if you know that your God is in control, that He is sovereign. And not only that, but He is good and he loves you then and only then will you be able to not be afraid of anything that is frightening and we know that those for those who love God all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose what a balm when you're facing any kind of thing that is frightening not that that thing that is frightening in and of itself is a good things, but all things, including that bad thing, is working together for your good. If you are called according to his purpose. So even if you should suffer from the hands of wicked men for righteousness sake, rejoice and be glad, because even in this, you are still in the hands of your sovereign God who can turn the king's heart wherever he wills. So do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So friends, keep your eyes on Christ. Keep your eyes fixed on him and press on. Let me pray for you. Lord, we do thank you for these encouragements that you have given us in your word, these promises that are found throughout the scriptures that would encourage us even in the face of, of great trials. I do pray that they would be for us a means where our strength is, fate, or is, is our faith is strengthened. I pray that it would be a means for us to be bold and not afraid, even in the face of those who hate us. And I even pray that it would be a means by which we would boldly, without fear, with confidence, share our faith with those who have no hope. And so, Lord, in all these ways, would you glorify yourself in our lives, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.